Hi, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am one of your hosts, Jess Geyer. I am one half of Wannabe Games, and I make tabletop role-playing games. And I'm here with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hi, Craig. Hi, Jess. Um, I'm Craig Campbell. I'm the owner of Nerdburger Games, and I make tabletop role-playing games as well. And uh, we are here with a guest, as usual. Hello, Tyler. Hey, I'm back. Yay! I'm, I'm a... Uh, freelancer about tabletop, so I work for whoever's willing to give me time and or money. <laughs> Freelan- freelancer about tabletop as opposed yeah. to about town. It's Yeah, that's what I was going mm. for. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard the, the phrase freelancer about town. I've heard man about town. Sure. Yeah. But I, I also really like the imagery of a freelance, like someone actually carrying the lance around. I think we should bring that back. Uh, I think that maybe Tyler, you can start that up. I got, I got good news. I submitted an entire RPG to one of the clients I have right now. And the players are called Lancers because they're all freelancers. Well, there you go. (laughs) Um, Well, what are we talking about today, Craig? What's on our, our menu for today's podcast? Oh, well, it's arguable that this might have been a good topic to have right at the beginning, like early episodes of the podcast, but yeah. we're getting around to it finally. And it's starting a new campaign. Um, so, uh, and we've talked about session zero and I think uh, we can set session zero stuff aside. We've talked about that quite a bit. We've done it in an episode, um, I believe. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And if we have it, we'll get to getting into in depth on that but um outside of that like what uh does it take to kind of get a campaign going with the assumption that we're kind of looking at you're expecting as a gm you've got multiple players um who will be mostly consistent that this will be a long running thing hopefully you know best of intentions fingers crossed all of that um and what sorts of things you might want to undertake to get that campaign started up so big topic (laughs) wants to uh you know answer this question once and for all (laughs) (laughs) well i mean there's the elephant in the room that we've already joked about of like that assumption people are going to commit and Mm -hmm. best of intentions it's always a thing but i have started since finally deciding i should act like an adult now that i'm in my 30s that uh when i plan campaigns now it's it's we have a, a a presumed schedule that if you're not going to make it like the presumption, it flips the obligation. It's not like every few weeks we're like, oh, are we meeting? We should figure out a day and a time. It's it's every first Friday of every month, time and place. Assume that's what's happening unless otherwise. And that has helped a lot. Oh, yeah. That's helpful for any time that you're trying to schedule a meeting with more than yourself, uh, really, to be honest. Um, if you need regular set times to meet, If you were going to be meeting more than just once, just set the time and then have everyone kind of work that into their schedule rather than doing it the opposite way. (laughs) They'll fill up their schedule um, unless you put that building block in there. That's that's what's worked for me with like literally everything with every organization I've been in (laughs) and every campaign I've ever done. And that's why every campaign that has fizzled out for me has fizzled out because we didn't have a set. Well, not the only reason, but we didn't have a set time. And mm-hmm. that's a huge, huge piece of advice there, Tyler. 
And and I think communicating the expectation that like this is kind of a regular thing. I'm kind of figuring you're all going to give this campaign a, a certain level of priority for that time. Um, and I understand we all understand that there can be emergencies, um, but you know I think it's useful to communicate to the players outright that you know like if you're not planning to have this kind of be loosey goosey and have people in and out of the campaign or that might be the way the campaign's going to run and if that's mm-hmm. the case deal with it that way but if you're planning to kind of nail it down and say okay we've got five players and we're going to all kind of be there and if we're down one we'll play anyway and if we're down two what, what happens then yeah. you know you know knowing what all those expectations are so that the campaign can be a campaign (laughs) and actually have games happen. That's the thing. Like a campaign typically has this idea that you're going to have players coming back. They're going to have the characters coming back and that they need to kind of know what's going on day by day or like whatever your sessions are, you know, obviously you're not going to be role playing every day, or if you are, you maybe need to reconsider that for other people's schedules. Um, the the five players and you'll still play with with four is great i found a sweet spot to be six and you'll still play even if you're missing two because it's really hard to run a game with just three people and that kind of it actually kind of puts a little bit of like positive pressure on the rest of the players too like if i am absent i have just kind of wasted the time of the schedule of my my other friends here um or like i need to tell them in advance so they can know and they can do something with their time instead of waiting around for me or having something canceled on them in the last minute i mean that's what a responsible person would do um and then if it does become a problem because at that point if someone is missing like a no showing or like canceling at the last minute multiple times or like like with not great excuses that's the time when you can like sit down with that player and be like, okay, maybe this isn't working. Can I find someone else to fill your seat at the table? Which is a hard conversation to have, but um, sometimes a necessary one. Again, you don't want to waste everybody's time. You don't want your time to be, be wasted either. If you, if you're doing a campaign, it takes a lot of energy. It's, it's an uncomfortable conversation to have with that person, but it's also, it's equally kind of bad um, and kind of, uh, multiplied by how many other people are expecting there to be a game and there's not a game. And that can, you know, if it keep, kind of keeps blowing up because of a few people or one person can't make it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, the, 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 the trouble I usually have with the campaign is like how much as a GM, how much prep do I put into the opening of the campaign? Like how much am I going to kind of get set down Um, And I think it's useful to, you know, if you're dealing with a game system that's like, oh, it's all in one book. Well, you got one book. Everybody's playing from that book. You're good. But if you've got a game, if you're playing a a game that has like multiple source books and, uh, you know, it's worth defining for everybody, like, okay, we're going to use this world book. We're going to, you know, like these supplements are okay. Like there, there is an upper limit potentially to um, the GM and the players being able to kind of keep track of information from a lot of different sources um, and how um, it can slow down things at the table. If people are constantly shuffling to a Mm. book to find a rule or a spell or, you know, a superpower or whatever. Yeah, it does slow things down. Um, So like, you know, figure out 
as a, as the GM, like figure out what your you know, in, in taking into account what the players probably want, mm-hmm. um, like what the limits are on all that sort of thing. Like how much are you going to do and how much are you using of um, like published world information? Uh, you know, some players are going to get into like, like if you're playing D and D and you're playing forgotten realms, like there are players who know forgotten realms, like inside and out. And they love the fact that they know all this lore and they can get really, really get into it because they love the setting. Well, how much are you going to twist that? How much are you going to say, okay, you can't necessarily count on every little bit of information about the forgotten realms being accurate because I might reskin or tweak or whatever, some things. Um, and in like just letting players know what that expectation or what they can expect, because uh, you know, you don't want a player to come in thinking that they've got like, I'm playing this, uh, you know, worldly sage character who knows so much about the forgotten realms because I personally know a great deal about the forgotten realms. And then suddenly they find out that like, well, half of what they think they know about the Forgotten Realms is not going to be able to be accurate because you're turning everything on its ear. Um, That changes their experience. Oh, for sure. And, uh, you know, on that, one of the things I've started doing is, you know, assuming you have that session zero and you set all your base expectations and stuff, I like to revisit with people either as a group and or as a one-on-one a couple of sessions in, right? Because that, that's your opportunity, I find, after session two or three, where they've actually like played the character now and they're getting in that world and that's your time to, you know, revisit expectations versus reality. And, you know, also as, as a GM uh, or applicable name for it, you can start being like, all right, your character seems to be doing this in the world. Where do you want that to go? And weaving in more stories and stuff. Yeah, sure. It gives players it gives players the opportunity to quietly retcon something about their character that they 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 decided hey this is like some aspect of my character's background that now we're playing the game and it's not really important yeah. and useful or the game is kind of a different type of game that like there's better stuff that can be done so like you can like I like to let players uh, you know let their let their character be, characters be sort of malleable for the first mm-hmm. few sessions until they really kind of get a grip on because create creating a character and having this wonderful concept for a character. And maybe it works fine for the campaign that you end up in, but it, it may also be like, Oh, I, I wish I would have made different choices if I had known just a few more things. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of let the player tweak that and you can, and, and potentially you as the GM tweak some things too, to like, mm-hmm. you know, I had said, we're going to start the characters in this kind of area, but the character group clearly is geared well to travel. So now I'm going to let everybody know, yeah, we're going to take it on the road pretty soon. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's a lot to be said for like setting those reasonable expectations, communicating them up front. And if necessary, changing some of the like if you don't want like super strict rules for everything and then that not work out and that be the reason why your game breaks, have a little bit of flexibility. and again, we're, we're still assuming here that you've had a session zero. I think that that is the assumption we should go with for this and the rest of this episode, um, that you you give yourself the opportunity to change it if you need to. That's, that's super, super good. Um, same thing with your schedule, too. Maybe the schedule stops you know, yep. working. Um, what about uh, you know setting the scope for yourself, for your planning? Like, how... how how do you determine the direction a campaign is going to go giving yourself, you know, the amount of narrative control and fun that you like as a GM while also letting your players start to kind of explore and get hooked in. 
I mean, I have I have two tricks that I really like for this. Um, and the first one is is I I do a thing now at my session zeros of I will not be doing the recap at the start of each session. That's on a player. Um, because then what that does as a, as as the person hosting the game is if they keep missing certain details and they're never going to even recap, you know, they don't care about that. And it gives you like an immediate feedback and, you know, that can just never have happened now. It, it's, it's all a shared universe of our imaginations. That if, no, we've all decided that that, that that robbery never happened. That never happened anymore. Um, which I found super helpful. And then as, as the host, you fill in if you're like, but remember that person's name is actually this because you're like sitting in the back of your head like that's an important bit. And that's just, they have a name mixed up. Mm -hmm. The other one is, oh my God, I had it and it just ran away from me. <laughs> well, that's it. You're off the show. Yeah, um, I know, right? Like that's fair. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you can't think of it, we can, we can, we can circle back around. To well, it. yeah, Tyler, you, what you said reminded me of the importance of having notes for a campaign. If you're doing a campaign, um, and it's something where the players need to remember things that have happened in the real, in like the universe of your game, these things might've happened day. And then the next day, and then the next day, a reasonable person would remember those things. Um, uh, okay. Uh, you'd remember most of those things, but if you're only meeting once a month, once every two weeks, even once a week, it could have been 10 weeks ago that this thing happened. If you have that written down, not only can the players reference that, but you can reference it too. And I second your suggestion for the player recap. I, I won't recap things for, it's a good way to get the players to remember things if they are meant to recap. It, I, again, I, I just, I also love the, it's a quick temperature check too, right? Yeah. Uh, they'll all of a sudden add in like, anyways, this, this POS that just won't give <laughs> us a deal on the swords. And you're like, okay, this is a villain now. Yeah. <laughs> um. I found myself, there, there was a time when I planned, like I, I got so into the world building and the, the creative outlet before the campaign even began that I wrote so much backstory of like, and, and just developed so much stuff in um, like in my own campaign setting that I was going to be using for the game or whatever. Um, I don't do that anymore. Number one, because I am no longer in college with copious free time. Um, and number two, because uh the creative outlet is fun, but so much of it just for me doesn't end up getting used. So I think it's useful for GMs to keep in mind that it's okay to just kind of get a few of the basics down to start with and then grow that as you go. You don't necessarily, you know, when, when you're planning a campaign, you don't have to have 20 pages of, of notes put together about like all the different things that might be part of the world at this point and what's going on in this kingdom next door and what you know what's going on over there and why what are these npcs like and so forth you may you know th that's not information that you can conceivably communicate to the players in the first few game sessions because it's just too much info mm -hmm. to dump on them even if you could get through it all it's just too much for them to try to remember um unless you did some sort of a you know kind of world primer <laughs> primer you know like a, a handout sort of thing with a bunch of information but then you're also running the risk of like know your players and like okay who's gonna read like that big sec that big that big you know that little booklet that you put together that describes all this stuff and and who's gonna skim it and who's not ever gonna look at it 
Yeah, um, it's also a fast track for you to get burnt out if you're trying to do too much at the beginning, that front loading. Yeah. Oh, just as a, you know, and this comes out of being, you know, in game, being in game design as well as I'm, I'm always wary of telling my story and just like getting the story out and then being like, okay, that's it. I don't ever have to do anything with it again. Like if, if I have all the, if I do too much world building, it's like, oh, I've done all these things. There's all this stuff going on. And I don't feel like there's anything for me left to do. Like, you know, I, I can let the players play in that sandbox, but I've, I've defined an awful lot of things. And mm-hmm. I feel like, they're, they're, you know, you might find yourself thinking like, well, I've, you know, I've kind of spent myself on all of that and I don't have anything else to do. Or it's maybe potentially, um, you know, you as a GM listener, you will, uh, you'll figure out for yourself what works best, but you know, maybe it's okay to, um, you know, do that creative kind of stuff in bursts as the players get to the point of actually being able to encounter some of that stuff. Oh yeah, for sure. I also find that, you know, on that, it, it, it is a thing that newer GMs do, especially of they'll, they'll fill in a bunch of, a bunch of ideas mm-hmm. and it can very much feel to the players like, okay, but all of the cool things have already happened in this world. Um, and I, I've seen it from even publishers. So it's like, here are all the amazing things that have happened in the past. And it's like, okay, but what, what are we doing then? When it's like, yeah, here's the 500 year history of this big war. And now the war is over and there's peace in the land. And you're like, okay, cool. So where do I when's, come in? When's the next war? And when do yeah. I get to do something? And yeah. that can be a little, yeah, that, that sort of thing can be a little disheartening. Mm-hmm. Um, for a player if they feel like there's really nothing like oh all the cool stuff already happened yeah That's i think the true. i think the intent for gms and for publishers too for when they when they write like that is that they want the world to seem really real and real like fully fleshed out but it kind of has the opposite effect on you as a player because then you feel like oh i'm coming in as a as a stranger i don't have actually this background here you know all of this information i'm the non-expert coming in i'm going to do something and i'm going to mess it all up or i'm going to say something stupid i'm going to do something wrong uh it's it's a lot like for me as a play when i'm playing a game i like to know okay what's my immediate setting maybe i want to know a couple like general world things but i want to know the immediate setting and maybe some of the the influential NPCs of the area and then be allowed as I'm creating my character in like a session zero type place to, I'm allowed to say like, oh yeah, that NPC was my mentor. I'm, I was raised by this person. This is where I grew up and have the GM like, like, yeah, this is open enough for you to insert yourself in here because I don't have it complete. I don't have this person's entire family tree lined out for several generations. You can fit in there too. It's, it's, it has the opposite of effect. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I like doing the thing now I've been experimenting with like, well, I'll have, Oh, this is the city guard. And I, I've done nothing about that. It's just like, Oh, there's a set. There's a city guard. They're going to meet in session one or whatever, for whatever reason. And ask them like, what, you know, this person, who are they? What are they like? And and really like put it on players to fill in, especially like you said, like their immediate surroundings can be so much more important than what the king is doing. Exactly. You might not even know what the king is doing. If, if you're playing in a medieval fantasy world, they didn't have newspapers back then. You don't know what the king's up to. And you can always fill in that later. Like maybe you have a you have a cool idea for something the, the guard could potentially do, but don't like 
like you can leave that open and maybe the players will have a really cool idea instead to be like, okay, I'll save that for something else. Or maybe they don't want the guard at all. Like in their backstory, they don't care about it. And then you can be like, okay, well, here's my time to, to shine. No, I have, I have this whole plot line I can introduce that I think will be really cool. Exactly. Yeah. Or they can do what my group did where I gave them a member of the city guard and they're like, that's actually my estranged mother. And I'm like, okay, well, that plot line's just written for me. I love that. It's perfect. And I love when my players do that too, because it saves me so much planning and imaginary (laughs) energy. Uh, And like the best kind of creation is when you can create with other people and bounce off ideas. That's also why the recap, um, like the temperature check recap that you're talking about is good too, because sometimes if they're really excited about something, they'll start spinning off their conspiracy theories and you can steal little (laughs) bits of information from that if you don't really have a plan for something that they're latched onto. Um, The the, the idea of not knowing what the king is doing um, makes me think too of uh, something that you can do as a GM when you're starting out and you're getting stuff out there. Um, for the players to latch onto and work from is couch it in word on the street is X, you know, people believe that Y um, so that it, that, that information may not necessarily be accurate because if it's like big scale stuff, like, you know, the, the players, the characters, the players characters don't necessarily know what the regent is doing. Like, you know, people might believe that the regent is like a wonderful person and they're doing all this, you know, giving a, uh, you know, alms to the poor and they're doing all this, but, but, you know, later on you reveal that when the region comes out and gives alms to the poor, they're also passing messages to a spy network that they're doing something wacky and like, yeah, who like knows? <laughs> um, but you can, you can couch it as like, well, this is what your character has heard. This is what your character believes or what other people tend to believe um, rather than kind of setting things in stone. That's it. And, and that gives you as the GM, the out, um, to not with everything, because if you make everything a lie, then players won't mm-hmm. trust you. But you can you can take a few of those items and twist them in a different direction um, when it becomes apparent that that's a better um, hook for a story down the road. Yeah, I mean, you only have to look so far as your own news and politics today to realize that sometimes the people, the things that people think aren't really what's going on. And that is a normal thing to happen. Um yeah, I, I, the using that couched in a rumor so you can kind of have the outline there for you um, is a great GM hack. And, and, you know, tied to that is this factoid that's just always stuck with me. I don't know if it's true, but one of those things that, that feels true, but it was something along the lines of like a 12 year old today actually has more actionable, like military level intelligence than the US <laughs> president did in 1980. Like, this is how much more information we have today and how much more, like, we know what's going on in the world. So if you extrapolate that back to even a magical medieval era. Half the average back. person, what, what the average person knows about what the, um, what the, re, you know, the local nobles life is like is pretty minimal. Like, they're, they're, they're allowed to know what the noble wants them to know. Yeah. You know, and 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 their their hatred of the noble can be as shallow as like, I had a dispute about my cow, and he didn't <laughs> side with me. And it's like, yeah, that was that's a lot of people's lives in different eras. A cow is really important to some people. Well, hey, that that's the, that's almost the plot for one of my favorite movies of all time, The Emperor's New Groove. Yep. Like they like they they had a dispute with the noble about what what their land is going to be turned into. And it became a wacky, awesome adventure. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, there, there's a lot. Like I like personally when I'm starting a campaign, I don't like, I don't like to do a timeline. That's too much. Like if I, if I give myself a mountain of work to do, it becomes overwhelming for me. And then I just won't finish. Mm-hmm. But if I pick just a couple of interesting, I love character creation. So I'll, I'll make a couple of interesting NPCs. I'll plop them down. Um, and maybe they'll have some motives. Maybe they'll be connected to a faction. And then I say, okay, here, here's this. How, what do you want to do with this? How do you want to play with these people? <laughs> and then fill out their history. Maybe not even until I'm in the middle of uh, the third session or something or the fourth or fifth or whenever it becomes relevant. Yeah, giving the players a half a dozen situations that their characters can actively manipulate and actively become a part of is plenty to start mm-hmm. off a game session because the the group will like you you might have some forceful personalities that say they really want to go after this thing here um but the, you know otherwise the group will kind of figure out like what their what's the, what's the the right thing for us to do now like like you don't have to have you know 50 plot hooks like five is plenty um at any given time to just give the players enough information that okay these are the things that are actionable for your character these are things that your character can directly affect at this Mm -hmm. point from where you are your status within the society your location where you're at right now what kind of contacts and friends you have that can help you get things done and then as the as the campaign progresses then you know all of those variables change and you can add additional things to the list of potential hooks. And I would recommend not like hoarding all of your really cool ideas to like for later for safekeeping, because you never know when you'll actually get there and you'll always have good ideas. Good ideas will always come. And some, some good ideas you can continue to reuse over and over and over again too. So don't be afraid to drop your super, super cool NPC into the very first episode because that could be what gets people to want to come back for a session two. And you need a session two to have a campaign. And, oh, and sure. as we've talked about too, you've got this really cool idea and I'm going, oh, I'm going to sit on this. I'm going to wait. We're going to use this in like the last quarter of the campaign. It's going to be the thing that really ramps it up. Maybe the players aren't going to latch onto that thing. Yeah. Like there's no reason to go, you know, like you don't have to sit on anything for too long. Like, you know, it's useful, you know, if there's something you want to try a little down the road, you have a few things in your pocket that you're ready to go with, you know, that I'll, I'll bring this up later, but don't, uh, don't count on the players necessarily latching on to them. Yeah. You know, to have stuff in your pocket, finally get through the end back to what I was thinking about before and had lost was, uh, prepping ideas based on theme instead of like a, a strict plot, right? Because if you're doing like part of your session zero is presumably the pitch. We're going to do, mm. you know, this is going to be political intrigue and we're going to have a political intrigue game or we're going to be dungeon crawling. So you prep ideas on theme and and have a few fun set pieces in your pocket. Um, like the one that I have for my steampunky D&D one is like, they're going to fight on a train at some point. I don't know <sighs> how we're going to get there. But we have to fight on the magic train at some point. Of so, course. You know. And you need an airship at some point. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that you need one, but in all of my steampunky yeah. ideas, there's always an airship. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I like that you called the session zero a pitch. And then session one is the pilot. And yeah. you just want it to be picked up for a full series. And you might do some <laughs> recasting. You might do some recasting between the pilot and the actual 
know, rest of the season. That's a great way to put it. I, I so regularly end up organizing and bringing together tables that during sessions, sessions zero usually start with me with like me pitching, like, here are the three campaigns I'd be interested in running. What is the group latching on to? And I think that that's, you know, also the result of, of working in the industry as well, not just like being an enjoying a person who enjoys RPGs. Professional RPG enjoyer. (laughs) (sighs) Okay. Ready for a world-class pivot. Speaking of being a professional RPG enjoyer, how do you become a professional RPG maker or writer or designer or list your, your following profession here? Cause our next topic, our game design topic is starting a company. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> oh that side that was heavy no so i have yeah. to do so i have i have to do that i had to get my head i have a thing i have to say for every time i do this i have a law degree i'm not a practicing lawyer i'm not your lawyer anything i say here cannot be taken as legal advice this is legal information i need to say this so i don't get sued i have to do this every time i talk about stuff like this yeah i'm not a lawyer i have no law degree also anything everything i say here is conjecture based yeah. on my own experience and the experience of other people um when it comes to anything legal if you have concerns and you should always have concerns about anything legal, um, yep. consult the appropriate person or find like legitimate advice from somebody who knows something about that. I have no, online. I have no assets, so you can sue me, I guess, if you want to, but you're not going to get a lot. Yeah. I make, I make the joke. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome to have what's in my bank account for the company. <laughs> oh, you're not though. <laughs> no, not really. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the, uh, yeah, that 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 being the case, um, yeah, I've I've got a bank account that is the company bank account. That's where the money goes um, from Kickstarters and sales of online stuff. And um, I get I pay my you know freelancers and everyone out of that, and I pay occasionally pay myself out of it. Um, but yeah, let's talk a little bit about um, starting a company. Um, and the first question is, do you need to? No. Um, no. Not <laughs> strictly speaking, no. Um, if you're a freelancer, probably not, um, you know, you can, you'll be signing contracts to do the work that you're going to do. Those contracts will have whatever legally binding, whatever's in there. Um, but then there, you know, if you start to create your own stuff, there comes a point where it's probably a good idea. Um, you make a little game, put it up on itch.io maybe not that big of a deal, but like, where, where's the point? Um, Tyler, from your background and, and thoughts on this, uh, feel free to chime in. And Jess and I, I Tyler, are you a company, Tyler? I, ha, ha, I own stakes in a couple of companies. Okay. Okay. So um, all of us here have some ownership of a yes. company. My freelancing work is mostly not through a company. Um, I'm strictly, I think corporations as a legal concept are phenomenal. If you're lucky enough to live in Britain or certain parts of Canada, it's amazingly easy. It's just worth doing as soon as you have you and some other people are trying to do a project together because it just forces you to have everything laid out properly. Um, Because I have been a part of things and I've seen horror stories of people 
we're working on a project together. And then who does what, who gets what, who owns what very quickly becomes an absolute mess. Um, and it's worth noting that in most jurisdictions, you can't have three people sign a contract. A contract can only be between two people, like two entities. So as soon as you have like, oh, all us three of us all agree to this contract, it's technically actually separate subcontracts between each of the groups, which results, it just is very quickly a mess. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, most jurisdictions have an underlying rule we don't talk about, which is contracts are only between two groups. So it can be, it's two legal persons. So it could be like, again, in most, most countries whose law comes from England originally, corporations are legal people. NGOs are sometimes legal people. We're all legal people. Usually children are not legal people necessarily. <laughs> it's weird. But yeah, so if, if the three of us signed a contract and all of us signed it, it would actually technically be in most jurisdictions one contract that is me and Craig, one contract that is me and Jessica, and one contract that is Craig and Jessica. And what violates each of those contracts might not violate the others. So as soon as you get more than two people and you're getting complex situations, that's when I say go for a corporation. Um, again, your mileage is going to vary depending where you are. In Britain, I know it's, it's like, used to be ludicrously easy. Like it used to be you paid 30 quid and you could just get a company. And then you sat down and you did the rules and it's like, oh, a delight. In Ontario, it's like 300 bucks Canadian. I don't know the states nearly as well. I know each state is its own. They're situation. all over the place. Um, okay. And there are some states where it's a gigantic pain in the ass and incredibly expensive, relatively, you know, yeah. relative, relatively speaking to what you might be dealing with as like this indie game producer who's maybe doing this as a side gig. Yeah. And, and you're just one person. Um, so the, 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 the first rule is really to like, you know, look at where you are, find out what the rules are for your state or province or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and see what the situation is there. Like the last time I had a talk about California with anybody about this was California, even forming an LLC, a limited liability. Um, is it corporation or company? Um, yeah, I don't remember. LLC. In, depending on your jurisdiction. Last I heard from somebody talking about Cal California's, like, that, that's what I was told, is it's yeah. ridiculously expensive. Um, but uh, in Georgia, where I live, not so much. So yeah. <laughs> it worked out nicely. Um, and I basically went to creating Nerdburger Games as an LLC, a sole proprietor LLC, which is different than a multiple proprietor LLC. So we'll look in into all of the, in the States. Again, <laughs> in the States. my example, Yeah. Um, different everywhere you go, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and form that up when I got to the point of like, okay, I made one game, but I'm going to make another one. Well, now it's like, this is going to become a thing. So, um, and it was, you know, for the sake of like saying my money, Craig's money is here and my company's money is there. So if something happens that causes the company to get in trouble, um, the company's money is going to potentially get taken away by somebody and it's nobody's going to touch Craig's money or his condo or his car. Yeah. Um, that, so that's the. That's the theory of why companies are good or corporations are good is you get what's called the liability shield, which is because the company is a legal person separate from you. If the company gets in trouble, such as with their debtors, it's the company that has to pay the debts, not you, the individual. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's it's all it's very complicated. My my company is a, it's a leftist company. It's 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 a very ironically an anti-capitalist company. Um, uh, super ironic, I know. Uh, that's that's the kind of games we make. Um, but we we have one specifically so we can have. It's me and my husband right now specifically so we can have the company stuff in one bin and our stuff in another bin but we're not big enough for anything to be you know nothing's really legally dangerous for us in terms of either our personal assets or yeah, our if, company if assets. somebody actually sues sues nerdburger games i i fucked up hard yeah. like something really messed up happened because i'm just putting books out yeah um, like board do. game makers little pieces little kids put in the mouth like there's there like there suddenly becomes like the real possibility of of yeah. legalities for for that sort of thing and that's you know that's that's for a whole other podcast about board game design and everything and like when games are for like little kids and how big the pieces can be and they have to be tested and there's huge fees that are surround that um in order to be able to put a label on it that says it's for these ages um but yeah, like it, for RPGs, it's it's separating all of that stuff. Some people will do what the what, what's referred to, uh, like I hear referred to as doing business as. Yeah, like DBA. You, you can have a name, yep. like Nerd Games. When I did the first game, Murders and Acquisitions, I was Craig Campbell doing game, doing business as Nerdburger Games, um, and all my taxes were under me okay. as a as the sole proprietor of an LLC. They are still all under me because there's no other person to be dealt with but then as soon as you get another person involved then it's potentially you've got a company that like you're you you may have to do taxes a separate set of taxes for mm -hmm. the company and in most jurisdictions you always have to do a separate set of taxes for the company because the company's money is separate and you're literally like you're not allowed to take even if it's even if it's in many other jurisdictions even if it's craig's the only shareholder craig's the ceo craig's the only employee that's the company's money. You can't take it without some sort of receipt of like that is pay or that is dividends or ways to move money from one to the other. Otherwise, you're literally robbing the company and weird stuff can happen. Like technically, if you if you owe money to, let's say, a printer and then you take money to yourself, the printer can sue you on behalf of the company for robbing. The, it's super weird stuff can happen when you get in that area. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think that, like, that can all be solved by number one, engaging in ethical business practices and not doing stuff like that. Uh, and, and number two, making sure that you know what you're doing and maybe putting it all down in writing. If you're engaging in a contract with somebody, instead of just saying, hey, will you do this for me for $300? Always. Maybe have that written down somewhere. And it's going to get you out of a lot of trouble. Yeah. And talk to the tax professional who is familiar with you know your jurisdiction your state your province whatever and how any of that yeah. sort of thing is handled um and find a tax professional who like if you've got one person that you've been having do your taxes if you if you don't do them yourself you got a person who's doing your taxes like talk to them about like well i'm forming a company like do you deal much with companies because some yeah. some cpas don't they just they just do people taxes you know they just do taxes for individuals so you might want to find somebody um who can do both or have to separate tax people that you can go to to because the uh, you know it, it, the, the best thing about having somebody the worst thing about having a cpa do your taxes for you is it costs you money mm -hmm. the best thing about having a cpa do your taxes for you is they can usually find enough money to get back that pays for themselves yeah um so uh you, because they know all the little all the little rules and loopholes um but that's something to keep in mind too as far as like 
company formation is like how that affects your taxes and whether or not you've got a CPA who's prepared to handle that sort of thing. And if you're, uh, again, just my opinion, wholly my opinion, if you are in a corporate corporation situation, LLC, any sort of company, that's when you don't do that. You, you don't do your taxes for that unless you are like educated <laughs> to do all of that. I, yeah, you, you, you can't. You can. I realize I'm not saying you can't, but I'm saying it's probably a good idea to have somebody that definitely knows all the ins and outs because uh, yeah, I don't cor- know how corporate tax law is a is a fair bit more complicated than individual. Yeah, that's yeah. more complicated than I can handle. It's already complicated enough for an individual. And it's just, and it's just not a headache that you probably want. No. Is is the is a big part of it. Yeah. I mean doing already, taxes, doing taxes for a company in Canada that lost money, didn't even make money, lost money. I think I had to do six forms because I did the taxes for one of the small companies. And it's just, you know, I, I will say that you can usually save money with your accountant for a corporation if you're using some software like Wave, which is what I use, or there's other ones that are either free or very affordable. If you do all your finances through it for your company and you are like real up to date on that, it's going to actually provide you like, most of your tax information ready to go, which then you can go to the CPA and be like, please look over my work, which is usually a lot cheaper than please do this work. Fair enough. Uh, there's, there's a lot of different direction to go with all of that. But, so you know, yeah. And it's, again, it's going to be different for everybody, depending on what your company situation, what kind of company it is, what the jurisdiction is. It's like making this, taking the step into having a company is not just like, oh, well, I'll, you know, file this and I'll pay this fee once a year and I can put LLC at the end of the, uh, you know, the, the, the company name. Um, mm-hmm. It's, you know, being up to speed on all that. I mean, I had to teach my, my accountant what a Kickstarter was, um, which is a little weird because Kickstarter, you know, Kickstarter doesn't take payments for, it's not pre-orders, it's pledges for a gift that you will give later. And it's like, it's all this weird mumbo jumbo that like, I had to be like, okay, but this is actually like, this is, I'm getting money. This is income. Like we had yeah. a whole discussion about like, you know, that's all taxable. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Even though Kickstarter likes to couch it in weird terminology, it's like the IRS is like, no, that's income. Yeah. <laughs> Every lawyer I've talked to is like, no, this is just a high risk pre-order system. Just no one's <laughs> called them on it yet. Uh, I do want to flag one thing that is very important whenever you're doing creative work and a company is involved is who owns the creative IP. Yes. So depending on your jurisdiction and depending on a bunch of stuff, even if you create a company and you're the only owner, you can end up in a weird position where you don't own any of your own stuff. The company owns it. And if you screw up, um, and for tabletop RPGs, usually the screw-ups are almost always, you get too far in debt and you can't make payments, usually because a book doesn't sell. Usually it's print costs get too high and then your book doesn't sell and you're sitting on dead product. Um, you can end up getting all of your IP seized if your company owns it instead of you because that's the that's the other side of that sword of it being a legal separate person means it can own stuff you don't own <laughs> it's so incredibly like weird and complicated how it all it all ends up working and then things get even weirder and more bizarre when you're hiring freelancers for example to do work i can't imagine what it's like to have like a consistent employee yeah. or like a lot of the people that we've hired don't live in our country 
they don't live in the United States. They live maybe in the Philippines or in Canada or anywhere else. And that's even more complicated. And like whatever contract you have with them might not even apply for them. It is like this whole world of, I feel, I feel like a lot of it is held together with gum and shoestring <laughs> all under yeah. the premise that we're all going to treat each other. Okay. And not screw over anybody because there are so many, I've read so many horror stories too yeah. of people being screwed over. Um, like, like, I don't want to get into too many details on, on this right now, but like, like our company right now is tangentially related to some people. Now we didn't do anything, but we're tangentially related to something that's going on in the industry regarding people being screwed over for pay. And that's like yeah. super, like, that's like my number one bugbear um, <laughs> is, is people getting screwed over for pay. So like, there's, there's so much that can, can go wrong that even like all of the contracts and, and stuff and business acumen in the world can't like someone, someone might have better business acumen than you and, and figure out the loophole to, punch you in the face with it and the all the stuff having to deal with people with freelancers in other countries too from the contractual and legal side of things extends into all of the payment and tax oriented kind of stuff too because there's like if you're hiring somebody if i hire somebody from the u.s um and they do more than six hundred dollars or is it exactly six hundred dollars whatever the number is um where they, you know, I, I owe a, a 1099 miscellaneous a, a form that says I paid you this amount of money so that the IRS knows that I did that. Mm -hmm. um, but if I'm hiring somebody from another country, I may not have to provide them with any documentation, depending on the country, but they also still have to probably for their country report that as income, they get be careful, like you like, I, I had to tell people from outside of the country say I don't owe you a form, but please <laughs> claim your income from me as 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 income because I don't want to have something like bite me in the ass because you decided to screw around and try to avoid paying a few bucks to your government. Yep. And, and lest you think this stuff can't happen to you, it's worth looking into Shadowrun and MechWarrior are two of the biggest bases <laughs> of who owns this IP and it changing hands multiple times because the company's owned it. And if a company gets bought out or a company gets all its debts called, you can just lose stuff. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the upside, on the upside, um, my IPs aren't worth anything <laughs> in any sort of real, like significant dollar amount. Um, well, you I, just wait until your IP gets seized I, and then they make a Capers TV series on Netflix. And then I'm screwed. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, it's all worth nothing until it's worth a ton because it's like... Um, I think it's Forgotten Realms still technically a chunk of it belongs to Ed Greenwood still. Right. And he, because he negotiated really good terms and there's like a bunch of weird rules about that that resulted in like Ed Greenwood sold it for $5,000 and now it's worth millions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's weird, weird stuff. Yeah, I, I think it's worth when you're starting a company to make sure that you have like some sort of statement of ethics maybe written down somewhere too to remind yourself yep. of what you're trying to do even if that's not necessarily legally binding you have that to remind you that this is what i do and what i don't do yep. um and 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 kind of staying within those lines 
personally, I would rather, I would rather lose a bunch of money than, than do something shitty to screw someone over. Oh, agreed. And I, I think it's also really important to just, whenever you're in doubt, whenever a company's involved and you're in doubt, paper record it, mm-hmm. you know, because even, even an email that you send from yourself to yourself being like, yes, hello we've decided that I'm going to do this project on behalf of the company, but I'm owning the IP that if you have to defend it, that technically can count as a contract. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and it's one of, it's one of those things that will come up. I'm going to, I know that we've been trying a, a episode to do, a, to talk about um, uh, uh, contracts and um, NDAs and other, documents like that and like one of the things that's t- one of the things that's tied to it is that you'll hear me say many times when we talk about that stuff is like all of that has as much value as you are willing to pay a lawyer to defend it yeah. um or to prosecute um mm-hmm. if you need to um so you know that's something to just kind of keep in mind for like everything that you do legally regarding any sort of legal entity any sort of contractual thing any sort of money is like you know if something happens like getting a lawyer to defend it <laughs> is not necessarily going to be cheap yep. so uh, it won't be it won't be cheap <laughs> well, no, especially and- if, yeah especially especially it's something that you can't self-rep because a lot of the times if you're in the same state as your client you can go to small claims court and you can self-rep and it's usually fine it's going to cost you a hundred bucks and it's you know worth it but i've also been in cases where the other person is in another country and it's for a contract for let's say 5k and a lawyer's like, it's going to be 25K to get this money. And you're like, well, fun. Yeah. If you can even, if there's even jurisdiction, even if the law can touch them in this other country to begin with, which it may very well not be able to, depending on the yeah. country. And it turns out that sometimes, <laughs> sometimes those laws don't overlap or they overlap in a really weird way. Yeah. Not fun. <laughs> Okay, on a lighter note, um, naming your company um, yeah. is, uh, you know, number one piece of advice to start with there is look around and see if there's another company that makes anything remotely similar to what you're planning to make that has the same name or a very similar name. And don't name your company that. Um, just you're setting yourself up for the potential of a lawsuit where somebody says, well, even if the names aren't the same, they're close enough that it's causing confusion in the marketplace because you make a game with a a company name that is close to the same types of games that I make. And the company name is close to what I've uh, named my, my, my company. Um, you know, I didn't have a very hard time confirming that nerd burger is not a a particularly common, (laughs) um, combination of, of words but you know if like there's there's uh really cool sounding names for game companies that can potentially be using some relatively common words and you know you need to kind of dig around and and like really dig and see if that you know like try to avoid um getting too close to anybody else mm-hmm. and uh, on that uh, go ahead oh yeah and on that reach out to your local state province or um federal government because a lot of the times they have a department whose job is to help you with that i know in canada we literally have a database that you just you're allowed to search and it'll tell you if your name violates any rules or not it's phenomenal (laughs) that's nice i don't know if anything like that exists at least in in where i am right now and if it did you'd probably have to pay five dollars to access it 
Um, Seems like that's the, how it goes the for US, every government database. The U.S. has a, this will get you partway there. The U.S. has a searchable trademark database, mm -hmm. um, which will get you, like anybody who's doing significant business with their company um, probably has trademarked their mm -hmm. name. Yeah. Um, which is a whole other legal discussion. Um, you probably, you know, a lot of game companies don't trademark their names necessarily, but you know, like, you know, anybody that's doing significant business where it's like, okay, now I've got, you know, multiple employees and their livelihood depends upon this. And this is like my retirement fund that I'm building toward and all that sort of stuff. Like they'll, they'll trademark and copyright things that uh, to protect themselves and their, uh, their brand, their IP, their company. Um, but yeah, like you can at least get partway there and, and, you know, making sure that you don't, you can search. I was able to search the state of Georgia to find um, company names as well. So mm -hmm. even make sure there was nothing for sure in Georgia that was even close. Close to it, um, yeah. It's in their um, and I went digging through the um, uh, uh, the trademark database as well a few also, years ago, which has only gotten better. Yeah. I've, I've yeah. gone back to it at one point because I was curious who owns thunder the barbarian so i went and found out <laughs> um for the record i probably won't be trying to license thunder the barbarian because i believe it is now owned by spelling entertainment which means one of two things it is either going to be incredibly expensive to license or they won't give two craps about trying to license you a game um because aaron spelling and spelling entertainment bought up all sorts of titles back in the 80s and 90s it's also worth doing a quick Google for your <laughs> jurisdiction and naming rules because there can be weird naming rules. So for example, if you are in Canada, you cannot use the word royal in oh. your name for your company without permission from the British royal family. Wow. Like you literally have, and that, and usually that permission has to be like re-gotten every three years or something like that. Yeah, um, if that's the case, don't even do it because you don't want to risk. It's like, basically impossible. They could, they, you're they, a millionaire. They could, yeah, they could they could suddenly take it away from you. Yeah, I wouldn't even even if they for some reason let me do it, I'd be like, ah, yeah, no. three years from now they're probably just going to swipe it back away from me, and I'm not going to mess around. Yeah, go with go with weird words. That's yeah, good, that's I, you might advice. be thinking though, you might be thinking that oh, I'm just going to make up this make up a word, and that's what I'm going to name. Well, number one, someone might have also made up the same kind of word. Our brains are kind of weird that way. And number two, you probably want to make sure that your weird word doesn't mean anything else in a different language. And rule three, your word might violate actual terms. Um, in Canada, your company name has to re resemble what you do. Mm, so you, you could do Nerdburger games, but if you were just Nerdburger and you were a game company, they might get in trouble and say, no, you're a restaurant because it's Nerdburger. Sure. Um, Greg, new business venture. I mean, separately, as a great name for like a, a game cafe line. <laughs> sure. Hey, okay. I'm going to make a recipe for a nerd burger now. Yeah. Um, that's going to be my IP. You can't you take get, that. <laughs> got to get a little like, um, like one of those cutouts so that the buns and the burgers are meeple shaped. <laughs> oh, sure. oh look at look at that i like that idea <laughs> that doesn't create a lot of waste <laughs> no you can repurpose the extra cutouts of the bread and the croutons for your nerd oh well salads. no i'm making salads i thought i was making nerd yes, burgers. salads on the side with papers i assumed it was gonna be like a boutique experience and this was like the dough before <laughs> rising was put into this shape so it would rise out and you were homemaking. I, I assumed a higher level of I am You assumed wrong, my friend. 
I don't think that a bread would hold the meeple shape very well if you wanted it to be fluffy enough for a sandwich. Yeah, you can do weird stuff. You might need to be more of like a pretzel then. Yeah. Because you, you can do pretzels to like mm-hmm. hold their shape a lot better. And a pretzel bun is not bad. Or <laughs> the burger is like a, like an ice cream sandwich type. Oh, it's like a cookie. Quote, quote unquote, burger experience. Yeah. That'll so, so so just this week, we don't have a, I want to play that game segment. We instead <laughs> I was, have a, I want to eat that sandwich segment. I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> I was thinking we're dangerously close to an Elvis style sandwich. It was going to be like, all right, the buns are chocolate chip cookies, fresh <laughs> from the oven. And then you have peanut butter, bananas, and a burger and cheddar cheese. Oh, and, bacon, and, and bacon grease. Oh, yeah. gnarly. That's so bad. Just slathered in bacon grease. Well, because. Yeah, Elvis notoriously ate weird sandwiches like that. Yeah, peanut butter, peanut he ate butter, a lot of weird food in pickle. general. Yeah, yeah. Red um, eye, red eye gravy was coffee and bacon grease. It's in a book, like it's it's like something that he had. It's from this book. I remember radio guys talking about it years and years ago. It's basically coffee with bacon grease mixed into it, and it's red eye gravy. Yeah, it's something that Elvis had, like to put on waffles and. Stuff. I was gonna say just just inject it into his veins or. Yeah. Well, you know, Ooh. got fat and died on the toilet. I mean, like, wh- how? Why that happen? What, who's <laughs> to say how that? Could have who's happened? to say how? Like when he was putting bacon grease in his gravy. <laughs> Find out in the upcoming documentary <laughs> by Bob there's, Lerman. There's not. A, <laughs> there's not enough information about. Like nobody knows. Like why Elvis did what he did. Like you know, there's. There's plenty of information well, about Elvis. <laughs> His life is kind of an open book. Um, uh, man, yeah, well, so, I hope yeah. that we didn't scare anyone <laughs> off of starting a company. All the legal stuff can be kind of scary, but I think yeah. like if you're if you're worried about anything, like it's probably worth talking to a lawyer or talking to an accountant at the very least. If you're worried about it, um, and like we said at the very beginning, it's not necessary to create a company. You can if you're just on your own. And apparently contracts are only between two people anyway. So <laughs> everything I knew was a lie. Well, it's <laughs> the, the, I think the upside, if there is one to all of this is that a lot of what we've discussed here is like, once it's done, it's done. In many jurisdictions, you don't even have to pay an annual fee for your company. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, it's, so it's, it's not like we're giving like this, we're, we're not giving you this whole other skill set that you have to constantly do like marketing, which like, if you're going to get into game oh, design, God. you will be constantly doing that. But like the legal stuff is like, once, you know, once you got the company formed, okay, well now it's formed. And a lot of it said it and forget it. It's probably pretty much done except for any dues that you have to pay for the state or whatever yeah. the province. Um, you know, you, know, you deal with taxes once a year, you know, it, like there's it, yeah, it, it's not insurmountable. It also gives you like I the best way it's defined is it's just it's one heck of a suit of armor, like it, it's a lot of ta- steps, but it protects you from mistakes that you could make. It protects you from if you go into work if you go into business with other people, it it protects you from either side screwing each other over on purpose or by accident. Um, yeah, it, it it's a one heck of a suit of armor, and there's a reason a lot of people incorporate. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the reason why Wannabe Games did. Number one, we had two people working on it who are in a relationship that that can cause problems. Um, Number two, we were hiring freelancers. 
number three, we wanted to keep the money separate. Um, and, and it's just, it's just good to have. I mean, you know, I'm in the position four years into the company being formed that I, for the first time, um, am publishing somebody else's game. So <gasps> there is a contract between my, that person and Nerdburger Games, not between that person and Craig Campbell. Yeah. Um, Which is probably so also a good thing. That was, you know, that was, and, and that's how, to be honest, that's how my, all my freelancer contracts are. It's like, it's always Nerdburger Games does this, Nerdburger Games does that. And, you know, I signed it as a Nerdburger Games representative, the owner. Yeah. Um, so yay yay we solved it's, we solved it's, it it's not insur- <laughs> it's not insurmountable it's a little bit of a pain in the ass once it's done like tyler said it's mostly you know do it and, and it's done yeah i like it until set you're ready it, set it until forget. you're ready to take like another step like you know, there's you can always make things more complex but yeah. for, for if you're just if you're just making games and selling them online like well yeah i'm, I'm planning that, on this buying is about my... all you have to worry about you don't have to get too much further on I'm planning on buying or renting out like a whole private island. We're gonna fly in a bunch of people to have. Nurburger Games whole is gonna start festival. a convention, and that's gonna yeah. be a legal entity unto itself as well. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna buy an island. We're gonna declare it a new nation. Yeah. Are you gonna declare war? Gonna get a seat at the UN? I can do that too because the flag that they used in the courtroom that they sued me in had had frills on the flag. I'm just going to use English nobility law while I will walk the length and breadth of my realm. And that is what I survey. And that is what I have. And it's okay. Cause we're talking to a lawyer right now. Who's giving us not a lawyer. No, nope, not <laughs> a lawyer. The bar. I have a law degree. I am not a practicing lawyer. I practice law. I'm not I, recognized as a lawyer by any jurisdiction. I love, I love that about both the like the legal side of things and the medical side of things. How how much you can make somebody panic and say those exact <laughs> words. Not a doctor. <laughs> I, I have no medical degree. I've never practiced medicine. <laughs> everyone can say that they're a teacher. Um, Tyler, thank you so much for joining us. It, <laughs> thank you for having me again. I, 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 I'm leaving very informed now. I, I have a new tidbit I can tell people about how contracts work. And I have a great new idea for um, the, the poached name I'm taking from Nerdburger to make my own um, disgusting sandwich factory. Oh, good. Thank you. It's going to be disgusting. That'll be a great association with Nerdburger. Yeah, I it's, it's all my <laughs> plot to steal your company and your condo. <laughs> I, I have a moment of panic. You can't steal my condo because my condo is in Craig's name. <laughs> I do need to warn everyone. Uh, all of these rules don't necessarily apply in Quebec or Louisiana. They have different legal systems. <laughs> the French, the French are great when it comes to their legal systems. I have, okay, that's a whole other topic. Yeah, entirely. It's an entirely different legal tradition. It is like, like you have to go back to the middle ages to start explaining the differences. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to do it. I love nerding out about legal systems, but I think I am the only person who's willing to have like a three hour conversation on the German versus Scottish versus Roman. I don't, I don't think we need to do an episode about it, but I kind of want to go to a convention and sit down with somebody who designed games in, in Quebec or Louisiana and find out, like just have that conversation over dinner or something. It might be the exact same. I just have to say like, it's a different legal system. They are allowed to have whatever other rules they want. Right. Tyler, um, what do you have? What do you have to plug for us? I have uh, the Wild Hunt, which came out since the last time I talked to you. It's published by Stygian Fox. It was my first big book that someone let me write, mostly on my own. Um, it is about racism against 
the Irish and stuff in the 1920s New York with a Call of Cthulhu twist. Um, and yeah, we're about to have this, the, the follow-up edition book is supposed to come out later this year. And you can find me at, at T-O-L-E-R underscore R-O-I on Twitter or Tyler Romachinsky at anywhere else because I have a long Ukrainian last name. I've decided just to live with that instead of using a pen name. I mean, it's it's very unique. It's yeah. <laughs> there, I mean, you say that, and there are still two Tyler Romachinskys, and we're from the same area. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you you can find me. I am I am one of many Jess Geyers. Um, there's one who is a karate master. Unfortunately, I am not that person. Um, but you can find me on Twitter at, at Joska or on wannabegames.com or wannabegames on DriveThruRPG and Itch and all of that. And I'm Craig Campbell. And if you search for Craig Campbell online, you will first find a country singer before you find me. Um, because I love how we've all Googled our own names because this is the era that we live in. And uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, it's uh, the company is Nerdburger Games. The website is nerdburgergames.com. Um, stuff is up on drive through RPG, but, uh, also right now staged heroism is still on Kickstarter. It's rolling through stretch goals. It's a game about supers and villain, you know, superheroes, super villains, and the, the beauty that is failure. Um, so it's a twist on, uh, kind of a comedic twist on supers and, uh, just like, you know, having plans that go horribly awry, um, while they try to do their super thing. Also keep an eye out for our, any, voting for the podcast uh we are in fingers crossed we get selected yeah yeah we are in any submitted podcast i forgot to say that at the beginning i promised (laughs) myself i was going to say it Uh, but (laughs) again tyler thank you so much for joining us this has been a lovely conversation yes thank you thank you to steph Sachs for your uh the music that you license under creative commons which is something that we didn't even talk about today. Uh, the music for our opening and closing, which is called Avel. Uh, so again, thank you, Steph Sachs, and thank all of you for listening. And we'll see you back here next time. Bye. Bye.